Chapter Ten, Part One of the Swordmaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Swordmaker by Robert Barr, Chapter Ten, A Calamitous Conference, Part One. The prelate and his ward were met at the doors of Stoltenfeld's by the Archbishop of Treves in person, and the welcome they received left nothing to be desired in point of cordiality. There were many servants, male and female, about the castle, but no show of armed men. The Countess was conducted to a room whose outlook fascinated her. It occupied one entire floor of a square tower, with windows facing the four points of the compass, and from this height she could view the Rhine up to the stern old castle of Marksburg, and down past Koblenz to her own realm of Seyan, where it bordered the river, though the stronghold from which she ruled this domain was hidden by the hills ending in Ehrenbreitstein. When she descended, on being called Mittengessen, she was introduced to a sister of the Archbishop of Treves, a grave elderly woman, and to the Archbishop's niece, a lady about ten years older than Hildegund. Neither of these grand dames had much to say, and the conversation at the meal rested chiefly with the two archbishops. Indeed, had the countess but known it, her presence there was a great disappointment to the two noble women, for the close relationship of the younger to the Archbishop of Treves rendered it impossible that she should be offered the honor about to be bestowed upon the younger and more beautiful Countess von Seine. The Archbishop of Mayence, though a resident of the castle, partook of refreshment in the smallest room of the suite reserved for him, where he was waited upon by his own servants and catered for by his own cook. When the great Rhine salmon, smoking hot, was placed upon the table, Cologne was generous in his praise of it, and related again, for the information of his host and household, the story of the English princess who had partaken of a similar fish, doubtless in this same room. Despite the historical bill of fare, and the mildly exhilarating qualities of the excellent Obeveseler wine, whose delicate reddish color the sentimental archbishop compared to the blush on a bride's cheeks, the social aspect of the midday refection was overshadowed by an almost indefinable sense of impending danger. In the pseudo-genial conversation of the two archbishops, there was something forced. The attitude of the elderly hostess was one of unrelieved gloom. After a few conventional greetings to her young guest, she spoke no more during the meal. Her daughter, who sat beside the countess on the opposite side of the table from his lordship of Cologne, merely answered yes or no to the comments of the Lady of Seine praising the romantic situation of the castle, its unique qualities of architecture, and the splendid outlook from its battlements, eulogies which began enthusiastically enough, but finally faded away into silence, chilled by a reception so unfriendly. Thus cast back upon her own thoughts, the girl grew more and more uneasy as the peculiar features of the occasion became clearer in her own mind. Here was her revered, beloved friend forcing hilarity, which she knew he could not feel, breaking bread and drinking wine with a colleague, while three thousand of his armed men peered down on the roof that sheltered him, ready at a signal to pounce upon Stoltenfeldt's like birds of prey, capturing, and if necessary, slaying. She remembered the hearty cheers that welcomed them on their arrival at Koblenz, yet every man who thus boisterously greeted them, waving his bonnet in the air, was doubtless an enemy. The very secrecy, the unknown nature of the danger, depressed her more and more as she thought of it. The fierce soldiers hidden in the forest, ready to leap up, burn, and kill at an unknown signal from a prince of religion. The deadly weapons concealed in a church of Christ, 
all this grim reality of a faith she held dear had never been hinted at by the gentle nuns among whom she had lived so happily for the greater part of her life. At last her sombre hostess rose, and Hildegund, with a sigh of relief, followed her example. The Archbishop of Cologne gallantly held back the curtain at the doorway, and bowed low when the three ladies passed through. The silent hostess conducted her guest to a parlour on the same floor as the dining-room, a parlour from which opened another door connecting it with a small knight's hall, the Kleiner Rittersaal, in which the court of the archbishops was to be held. The archbishop's sister did not enter the parlour, but here took formal farewell of Countess von Seyne, who turned to the sole occupant of the room, her kinsman and counsellor, Father Ambrose. "'Were you not asked to dine with us?' she inquired. "'Yes, but I thought it better to refuse. First, in case the three archbishops might have something confidential to say to you, and second, because at best I am poor company at a banquet. Indeed, you need not have been so thoughtful. First, as you say, there were not three archbishops present, but only two, and neither said anything to me that all the world might not hear. Second, the rest of the company, the sister and the niece of Trebs, were so doleful that you would have proved a hilarious companion compared with them. Did my guardian make any statement to you yesterday afternoon that revealed the object of this coming court? None whatever. Our conversation related entirely to your estate and my management of it. We spoke of crops, of cultivation, and of vineyards. You have no knowledge, then, of the reason why we are summoned hither? On that subject, Hildegund, I am as ignorant as you. I don't think I am wholly in the dark, murmured the countess, though I know nothing definite. You surmise, in spite of your guardian's disclaimer, that the discussion will pertain to your recovery of the town of Linz? Perhaps, but not likely. Did you say anything of your journey to Frankfurt? Not a word. I understood from you that no mention should be made of my visit, unless his lordship asked questions proving he was aware of it, in which case I was to tell the truth. You were quite right, father. Did my guardian ask you to accompany us to Stoltenfels? Assuredly, or I should not have ventured. What reason did he give, and what instructions did he lay upon you? He thought you should have by your side someone akin to you. His instructions were that in no circumstances was I to offer any remark upon the proceedings. Indeed, I am not allowed to speak unless an answer to a question directly put to me, and then in the fewest possible words. Hildegund ceased her cross-examination, and seated herself by a window which gave a view of the steep mountainside behind the castle, where, sheltered by the thick, dark forest, she knew that her guardian's men lay in ambush. She shuddered slightly, wondering what was the meaning of these preparations, and in the deep silence became aware of the accelerated beating of her heart. She felt but little reassured by the presence of her kinsman, whose lips moved without a murmur, and whose grave eyes seemed fixed on futurity, meditating the mystery of the next world, and completely oblivious to the realities of the earth he inhabited. She turned her troubled gaze once more to the green forest, and after a long lapse of time the dual reveries were broken by the entrance of an official gorgeously apparelled. This functionary bowed low, and said, with great solemnity, Madame, the courts of my lords the archbishops, awaits your presence. The Kleiner Rittersaal occupied a fine position on the riverside front of Stolfenfels, its windows giving a view of the Rhine, with the strong castle of Lanach overhanging the mouth of the Lahn, and the more ornamental Schloss Martinsburg at the upper end of the Oberlandstein. The latter edifice, built by a former elector of Mayence, was rarely occupied by the present archbishop, but, 
as he sat in the central chair of the court, he had the advantage of being able to look across the river at his own house, should it please him to do so. The three archbishops were standing behind the long table when the countess entered, thus acknowledging that she who came into their presence, young and beautiful, was a very great lady by right of descent and rank. She acknowledged their courtesy by a graceful inclination of the head, and the three princes of the church responded, each with a bow, that of Mayence scarcely perceptible, that of Treves deferential and courtly, that of Cologne with a friendly smile of encouragement. In the center of the hall, opposite the long table, had been placed an immense chair, taken from the grand Rittersaal, ornamented with gilded carving, and covered in richly colored Genoa velvet. It looked like a throne, which indeed it was, used only on occasions when royalty visited the castle. To this sumptuous seat, the scarcely less gorgeous functionary conducted the girl, and when she had taken her place, the three archbishops seated themselves. The glorified menial then bent himself until his forehead nearly touched the floor, and silently departed. Father Ambrose, his coarse, ill-cut clothes of somber color in striking contrast to the richness of costume worn by the others, stood humbly beside the chair which supported his kinswoman. The countess gave a quick glance at the Archbishop of Mayence, then lowered her eyes. Cologne she had known all her life. Treves she had met that day and rather liked, although feeling she could not esteem him as she did her guardian. But a thrill of fear followed her swift look at the man in the center. A face of great strength, she said to herself. But his thin straight lips, tightly compressed, seemed cruel, as well as determined. With a flash of comprehension she understood now her guardian's warning not to thwart him. It was easy to credit the acknowledged fact that this man dominated the other two. Nevertheless, when he spoke, his voice was surprisingly mild. Madame, he said, we are met here in an hour of grave anxiety. The emperor, who has been ill for some time, is now upon his deathbed, and the physicians who attend him inform me that at any moment we may be called upon to elect his successor. That successor has already been chosen, chosen, I may add, in an informal manner, but his selection is not likely to be cancelled, unless by some act of his own which would cause us to reconsider our decision. Our adoption was made very recently in my castle of Ehrenfelds, and we are come together again in the castle of my brother Treves, not in our sacred office as archbishops, but in our secular capacity as electors of the empire, to determine a matter which we consider of almost equal importance. It is our privilege to bestow upon you the highest honor that may be conferred on any woman in the realm, the position of Empress. When you have signified your acceptance of this great elevation, I must put to you several questions concerning your future duties to the state, and these are embodied in a document which you will be asked to sign. The countess did not raise her eyes. While the archbishop was speaking, the color flamed up in her cheeks, but faded away again and her guardian, who watched her very intently across the table, saw her face become so pale that he feared she was about to faint. However, she rallied, and at last looked up, not at her dark-browed questioner, but at the Archbishop of Cologne. "'May I know,' she said, in a voice scarcely audible, "'who is my future husband?' "'Surely, surely,' replied her guardian soothingly. "'But the Elector of Mayence is our spokesman here, and you must address your question to his lordship.' She now turned her frightened eyes upon Mance, whose brow had become slightly ruffled at this interruption, and whose lips were more firmly closed. He sat there imperturbable, refusing the beseechment of her eyes, 
and thus forced her to repeat her question, though to him it took another form. My lord, who is to be the next emperor? Countess von Sein, I fear that in modifying my opening address to accord with the comprehension of a girl but recently emerged from convent life, I have led you into an error. The court of electors is not convened for the purpose of securing your consent, but with the duty of imposing upon you a command. It is not for you to ask questions, but to answer them. You mean that I am to marry this unknown man, whether I will or no? That is my meaning. The girl sat back in her chair, and the moisture that had gathered in her eyes disappeared as if licked up by the little flame that burned in their depths. Very well, she said. Ask your questions, and I will answer them. Before I put any question, I must have your consent to my first proposition. That is quite unnecessary, my lord. When you hear my answers to your questions, you will very speedily withdraw your first proposition. The elector of Trives, who had been shifting uneasily in his chair, now leaned forward and spoke in an ingratiating manner. Countess, you are a neighbor of mine although you live on the opposite side of the river, and I am honored in receiving you as my guest. As guest and neighbor, I appeal to you on our behalf. Be assured that we wish nothing but your very greatest good and happiness. The spark in her eyes died down, and they beamed kindly on the courtier elector. You see before you three old bachelors, quite unversed in the ways of women, if anything that has been said offends you, pray overlook our default, for I assure you, on behalf of my colleagues and myself, that any one of us would bitterly regret uttering a single word to cause you disquietude. My disquietude, my lord, is caused by the refusal to utter the single name I have asked for. Am I a peasant girl to be handed over to the hind that makes the highest offer? Not so. No such thought entered our minds. The name is, of course, a secret at the present moment, and I quite appreciate the reluctance of my lord of Mayence to mention it. But I think, in this instance, an exception may safely be made, and I now appeal to his lordship to enlighten the countess. Mayence answered indifferently, I do not agree with you. But we are here three electors of equal power, and two can always outvote one. The elector of Cologne smiled slightly. He had seen this comedy enacted before, and never objected to it. The carrying of some unimportant point in opposition to their chief always gave Treves a certain sense of independence. My lord of Cologne, said the latter, bending forward and addressing the man at the other end of the table, do you not agree with me? Certainly, replied Cologne with some curtness. In that case, continued Treves, I take it upon myself to announce to you, madam, that the young man chosen for our future ruler is Prince Roland, only son of the dying emperor. The hands of the countess nervously clutched at the soft velvet on the arms of her chair. I thank you, she said, addressing Treves, and speaking as calmly as though she were Mayence himself. May I ask you if this marriage was proposed to the young man? Treves looked up nervously at the stern face of Mayence, who nodded to him, as much as to say, You are doing well, go on. Yes, replied Treves. Was my name concealed from him? No. Had he ever heard of me before? Surely. 
replied the diplomatic Trevs. For the fame of the Countess von Sen has travelled further than her modesty will admit. Did he agree? Instantly, joyfully, it seemed to me. In any case, he has never seen me, continued the Countess. Did he make any inquiry whether I was tall or short, old or young, rich or poor, beautiful or ugly? He seemed very well satisfied with our choice. Trebs had his elbows on the table, leaning forward with open palms supporting his chin. He had spoken throughout in the most ingratiating manner, his tone soft and honeyed. He was so evidently pleased with his own diplomacy that even the eye of the stern mayence twinkled maliciously when the girl turned impulsively toward the other end of the table and cried, Guardian, tell me the truth. I know this young man accepted me as if I were a sack of grain, his whole mind intent on one thing only, to secure for himself the position of emperor. Is it not so? It is not so, Countess, said Cologne solemnly. Prince Roland, it is true, made no stipulation regarding you. I was sure of it. Any Gretchen in Germany would have done just as well. I was merely part of the bargain he was compelled to make with you. And now I announce to the court that no power on earth will induce me to marry Prince Roland. I claim the right of my womanhood to wed only the man whom I love, and who loves me. Mayence gave utterance to an exclamation that might be coarsely described as a snort of contempt. The elector of Treves was leaning back in his chair, discomforted by her abrupt desertion of him. The elector of Cologne now leaned forward, dismayed at the turn affairs had taken, deep anxiety visible on his brow. Countess von Sein, he began, and thus his ward realized how deeply she had offended. In all my life I never met any young man who impressed me so favorably as Prince Roland of Germany. If I possessed a daughter whom I dearly loved, I could wish her no better fortune than to marry so honest a youth as he. The very point you make against him should have told most strongly in his favor with a young girl. My reading of his character is that so far as concerns the love you spoke of, he knows as little of it as yourself, and thus he agreed to our proposal with a seeming indifference which you entirely misjudge. If you, then, have any belief in my goodwill towards you, in my deep anxiety for your welfare and happiness, I implore you to agree to the suggestion my Lord of Mayence has made. You speak of love, knowing nothing concerning it. I call to your remembrance the fact that one noble lady of your race may have foregone the happiness that love perhaps brings, in her desire for the advancement of one whom she loved so truly that she chose for her guide the more subdued but steadier star of duty. The case is presented to you, my dear, in different form, and I feel assured that duty and love will shine together. As the venerable archbishop spoke with such deep earnestness, in a voice she loved so well, the girl buried her face in her hands, and he could see the tears trickle between her fingers. A silence followed her guardian's appeal, disturbed only by the agitated breathing of Hildegund. The cold voice of the elector of Mayence broke the stillness, like a breath from a glazier. Do you consent, madam? Yes, gasped the girl, her shoulders quivering with emotion, but she did not look up. I fear that the object of this convocation was like to be forgotten in the gush of sentiment issuing from both sides of me. This is a business meeting and not a love feast. Will you do me the courtesy, madam, of raising your head and answering my question? 
The girl dashed the tears from her eyes and sat up straight, grasping with nervous hands the arms of the throne, as if to steady herself against the coming ordeal. I scarcely heard what you said. Do you consent to marry Prince Roland of Germany? I have consented, she replied firmly. Will you use your influence with him that he may carry out the behests of the three archbishops? Yes, if the behests are for the good of the country. I cannot accept any qualifications. Therefore I repeat my question. Will you use your influence with him that he may carry out the behests of the three archbishops? I can have no influence with such a man. Answer my question, madam. Say yes, Hildegund, pleaded Cologne. She turned to him with swimming eyes. Oh, guardian, guardian, she cried. I have done everything I can, and all for you, all for you. I cannot stand any more. This is torture to me. Let me go home, and another day when I am calmer I will answer your questions. The perturbed archbishop sat back again with a deep sigh. The ignorance of women with which his colleague of Treves had credited all three was being amazingly dispelled. He could not understand why this girl should show such emotion at the thought of marrying the heir to the throne, when assured that the young man was all that any reasonable woman could desire. End of chapter 10, part 1 Recording by Todd